You're listening to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Little by little, I was getting the sense of my time isn't my time. Just kept feeling this pull to the outdoors and wanting to do something in the outdoor space. Welcome back to another Two Bucks Podcast episode, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and today I have Brett Amundsen on the phone, and we are just talking a little bit here in the green room, Brett, but it sounds like you have had a lot of irons in the fire, still have a lot of irons. You're either going to have to build another fire, um, or you're going to have to start consolidating all these brands, and we talked a little bit about that too, but how are you doing today, Brett? Uh, I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. You just got back from Tazan Lake. You were mm-hmm. shooting and fishing, having a, a grand old time. Um, I got to ask before we jump into it, were there any like remarkable moments on that trip? Because usually when you go to Canada for a week, you, something remarkable happens. Yeah, well, it was remarkable because I got to spend two weeks up there. So oh, wow. It's, uh, yeah, and then that was actually one of the shorter trips. I've been going up to Tazan now since 2016. I filmed uh, a couple of TV shows up there when I was doing a show called Northland Outdoors and got to know the owners real well, got to be really good friends with them. And, and um, you know, over the years, just kind of kicked around some ideas to help them out and had this had this brainstorm of coming up with a YouTube show up there because anyone who's fished in Canada knows that it's generally cheating because <laughs> you just don't you don't have the pressure that you have down here, especially in Minnesota. Uh, there's just so many anglers out there that the fish get beat up a little bit. Obviously there's still some pretty good fishing, but you get up into a place like Tazin, which is in the far Northwest corner of Saskatchewan. As far as you can go, you can only get there by plane. There's no commercial netting on it. Very little fishing pressure. The camp is, is meant to stay small and it just allows you to just have some of the wildest fishing you'll, you'll experience in your life. So it was really cool. And this year we went up in August. So when you ask if there was something remarkable, uh, one of the goals I've always had, I've had this image because I do, I do other photography and videography for the lodge. So uh, websites, social media, brochures, Taz and TV on YouTube. Uh, I, I kind of stole this idea from another lodge in Northern Saskatchewan, but there's, there's been this, the, and a couple of the lodges have this, but there's been some epic shots of the lodge with Northern lights over the top of them. And I'm never there during the time of year when it gets dark enough to see the Northern lights. Normally there, I'm I'm there at the end of June or early July, and it's only dark for a half hour to an hour, and then it starts getting light again. So sometimes you'll wake up and you'll think you missed breakfast and it'll be four o'clock in the morning. Oh boy. But it's so, (laughs) it's so bright out. You think you slept in. Uh, But this year being up there in August, uh, Dan Amundsen and I went up there and filmed and we had a couple of pretty cool nights with uh, Northern Lights over the lodge. So we were able to get some some pretty neat pictures and videos of uh, the Northern Lights in in addition to world record size lake trout and, you know, giant pike. You know, the the place normally gets uh, at least one pike around the 50 inch marker over. And then uh, we, we saw some 60 plus pound lake trout get caught this year up there. So it's a, it's a pretty remarkable place. And are they, I got to ask on the pike. Cause we go to, we go to, I wouldn't even say Northern Ontario, central Ontario, um, big body water. And we catch some nice pike and I've caught a 44 and a half. That was like thick. And when you fish Minnesota, like basically anything in the forties is unheard of. And so yeah. 
and I got, we always hand land him and I couldn't even get my hand over the side of his back. And, and so when I think about like something approaching 50 is, are they still like proportionally as thick as like you get these 40 inches or do they start to get long and skinny? No, they're, they're pretty thick. I mean, depending on the health of the fish, you might see a skinny fish now and again, but uh, I saw the biggest one I've seen is, was a 51 and a half. I can't, I know we measured the girth. I can't remember what it was, but I was with the lodge owner, Trevor Montgomery and a buddy of mine, Jamie Dittman. We were up there filming and the three of us would go out to film Taz and TV. And basically Trevor would fish and, and basically be our guide. And Jamie and I would switch off. One of us would film and one of us would fish. And every time we caught one over 40, whether it was a pike or lake trout, we'd switch off. And I had just caught a 42 inch pike. It was starting to rain. So we were swapping cameras and actually kind of putting the big camera away, taking out some GoPros, something that was a little more waterproof. And behind us, Trevor's in the back of the boat going, hey, I caught a log and we thought he was snagged. So we started laughing, making fun of him. And I turn around and I see this pike next to the boat. I'd never seen anything like it before. It's just monstrous. And I'll never forget. So we filmed it and it was all with a GoPro, but we filmed it and then... I'll never forget him lifting it out of the net and just the size of the head as he was lifting it out of the net. I mean, it was, it's like something out of Jurassic park. It was, it was crazy. And four days later he caught a 51 inch pike on another part of the lake. So four days apart, he caught two over 51 and uh, they're just massive fish. Oh, I believe it. I mean, you get the lake we fish, you get into the lower forties even and the heads on those things are are massive and i've seen my bro me and we fished one lake in manitoba actually we caught more big pike just not the top end and i remember watching my brother reeling in and it was shallow enough that you couldn't see the fish but you could see them strike usually you know when they're down in the weeds you couldn't see them but you could see them this just huge mouth come out of the darkness and swallow and a lot of times it's hard to not set the hook too soon when you hit them when you see them strike you want to hit set the hook before they're really there and it was just the heads on some of these things, and that's a 43. So I'm thinking 51. Obviously, they probably grow faster that far north. So it's not like he, you know, he's automatically twice as old, but a super old fish, like probably is yeah. close to dinosaur. Like you're probably talking 30, 40 year old fish. Yeah, they. I mean, it's a pretty short growing season up there. So it, it's. The, I think the pike grow faster than the lake trout, but um, it, I would say that's definitely an old fish for sure. And some of those Lakers, when, you, when you're talking a 50-inch lake trout, I mean, that might be 80, 70, 80, 90 years old, too. So real Oof. short growing season, big, deep, clear clear water, really cold. So uh, pretty, sh- pretty short fishing season, too. We went up, uh, I think we were up there the second week in June a couple of years ago, and the ice had pretty much just come off. Oh, wow. And then when you start talking about September, the weather starts getting cold again. So it's a pretty short season up there. That's crazy. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and then it reconfirmed it was you're talking, but it, you have so many things going on in the outdoors, and you're obviously super passionate about hunting and fishing yourself. So how do you kind of balance the stress and the workload of, like, capturing everything, getting all of, like, you know, I assume most times when you go into the field or go onto the water, you've got a list of things you kind of want to get accomplished, maybe brands you're working for doing photos on, Maybe you're trying to tell a video story at the same time. You're obviously a fisherman or a hunter, so you want to enjoy the experience. How do you kind of boil all that together and and kind of not let the workload overcome the whole point of why we're out there? 
I mean, I just, I just kind of get lucky and wing it. <laughs> no, I, you know, that, that is, um, that is something to that. I remember when I decided to get into the outdoor industry side of things, I was doing radio in Fargo. I, I, I did radio for a long time before and I hunted and fished growing up, but I didn't make it part of my business until, oh, I suppose it was around, uh, 2007 or eight, I suppose, something like that. I started doing an outdoor show on the radio in Fargo. And I remember a friend of mine who I hunted with a lot. He said, don't, don't make the outdoors your job. You're going to hate it. It's going to become work and you're not going to want to do it anymore. You're going to lose interest in it. And I've, I've always kept that in the, in the back of my mind. And I, and honestly, the worry of that becoming true is probably what's kept me from keeping a nice balance of stress and enjoyment out there. At the end of the day, I want to remember that, that what I'm doing is, is something really fun. And there are definitely stressful moments, but we try to, we try to approach the the job or the work in a, in a way that, Hey, let's, let's go in there with a plan. Let's do what we can and let's have a backup plan. So if this doesn't work out, we can still get this or we'll go do this and we should be able to get something there. So we'll go in with, with a hope and an expectation, if that makes sense. Mm. And we, we shoot for the hope. And yeah. if not, we, we know for sure we should be able to get this depending on what the job is, of course. But we, we try to go in there with the mindset that we're going to have fun while we do. And I, and I think having, you know, depending on what we're doing, the making sure that we're having fun is what makes the project successful. A lot of times, you know, if it's just a YouTube video or say Taz and TV, we're always trying to tell a story. So it doesn't always rely on, on big, big fish or right. catching a limit or shooting a big buck or whatever, whatever the goal is. We try to, especially our, you know, our, our video work or our, our episodic work. We try to, we try to make storylines more than, you know, um, having a big, big bag at the end of the day. So the telling a story while can be very difficult in itself, a lot of times can be easier to achieve than, you know, catching a 50 inch pike or something like that. And if we get a 50 inch pike, that's going to make it even better. Right. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, that 50 inch pike can tell its own story really at the end yeah, of the day. <laughs> it does. Absolutely. Um, it does. Yeah. But I've struggled with that very thing. Like I want to do all these things. I want to hunt. I want to, you know, I want to be successful on the hunt. I want to try to video it. I want to try to take all these content pictures and then Maybe it's I don't plan mentally like what that looks like well enough, but think like the wheels start to fall off the bus, right? Camera goes dead or, you know, camera quits working, the shot didn't work out, we're four days into an elk hunt and I'm exhausted and I don't want to carry the camera on the mountain anymore. Um, something happens way too fast to get the camera out and I'm like, well, I'm not going to sacrifice a shot at an elk to get it on film, so I forget the camera altogether. And typically by the end of the trip, I'm just like, all right, whatever. I'm not, I'm done. Like, and, and it's more things I just want to do. It's not like brand obligations up until this sure. point. So it's not like things I have to do. Getting to that point, in the perfect case, we went to Canada this spring fishing, and I wanted to GoPro it. I wanted to set it up on looping and, you know, be able to do like a highlight reel in a way, maybe not full YouTube story, but more just short clips and stuff. Well, day two, the GoPro starts to seize up and lock and won't turn on, won't turn off, won't record. And then it, after that, it's just like, well, I don't know, it started to rain. I don't want to, you know, 
ruck the camera any more than it's already seized up. So stuff like that. It's I wonder like what's the secret sauce to maybe not let you get into that like frustration mode. And maybe it's just I try to fit ten pounds of stuff in a five pound sack, and I need to say like if we're gonna do this, that's fine. But everything's gonna take longer, and I just got to plan on that. Honestly, that's that's one of the biggest things right there. We always uh, kind of joke that making a TV show is to, is hurry hurry up and wait, and or if we're filming with a big crew of guys, if it's pretty sportsman too, then it's then we will stop everything and say, hey guys, we just we got to get this shot, we got to do that, and it depends on what it is. It's hard to do that when you're elk hunting on a mountain, but you know, for waterfowl hunting or pheasant hunting or fishing, we'll just stop everything and be like, all right, we got to get a shot of you doing this. Um, you know, or, or, you know, if you're, if you caught a fish, we got to get a shot of you holding it up before you release it just real quick, put it in the net. If you got to revive it, whatever you got to do. Um, but, but there are some things now when we're out just kind of running and gunning like for our YouTube and it's something like an elk count where you got to be quieter, a little more stealthy. You just, you just hope for the best. Um, honestly, having somebody that's dedicated to just camera work as much as it's hard to bring you know, having an extra body on a stealthy type situation like that yeah. is, is pretty tough, but having somebody that's their only job and, <clears throat> and having that person be a hunter, you know, yeah. having that person with experience of being quiet in the woods and stalking big game or whatever the case may be, knowing how to climb into a tree stand, whatever, however you're, you're hunting. That's pretty important. Having a, having a camera guy, I think uh, I've heard this quote in, uh, from a number of different places, but it's from Jim Shockey saying an outdoor camera guy is the hardest job in the world, especially if you're, especially if you're filming big game, because if you got one tag to fill and one giant animal, you, get and you don't get the that, first try. Yep. if you, yeah, you don't get a second chance, you know, waterfall hunting, ah, oh, there'll be another flock. I'll get, you know, I'll get right. a tight shot of this or I'll get it in focus this time or I'll, I'll get a wide shot, whatever fishing i will catch another fish but big game hunting getting that shot is so key so what i'll say to that is having backup backup equipment having backup gear and then what you mentioned with having a gopro on loop or in hindsight that to, to, for us has been huge just this to episode get that is brought moment. to you by so steelhead outdoors the big cameras what out of focus steelhead outdoors the batteries die i'm editing something from alaska right now made fire and it was pretty funny it was waterfall so we're, market. and dan was filming and he's getting the shot, your getting the shot, getting the shot perfect fit and all of a sudden whether you pick one of the ah, fan battery favorite colors inspired by our national parks the next bird that came in what was the other one the battery died and custom colors they offer your save is going to be perfect you can even get a safe in a rust color where they actually make the metal rust to just the right level and then they seal it so you always have a perfectly rustic looking safe. And that's just on the outside. When it comes to the inside, you can configure it all kinds of different ways by adding panels to the door, using shelves on half to organize ammo, or even adding their motion activated light kit. I went with their brand new Recon 32 line in the awesome tactical looking black and white. And I currently have my safe set up with lawn guns on half and shelves on the other side so I can store all of my ammo and I love it. But the best part is it's completely modular. So as your firearm collection grows, you can configure your Steelhead Outdoors safe to match. Check out SteelheadOutdoors.com to build your custom safe and use the code two bucks. That's one word 
two bucks to save $150 on your Steelhead Outdoors safe. What's that? The card was full. Yeah. So then. <laughs> it just but adds thankfully, up. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, we had a GoPro running the whole time, just on a static wide shot of the decoy spread. So we still got all those shots. And then we can also now go back and have two angles of that same shot. So if you're, yeah. if you're sitting still in a spot, you can set a camera up on a tripod or in some sort of mount, you know, and try to camouflage it or uh, do like a head mount or something like that. And then hindsight has become our friend. Uh, I think GoPro's got some bugs to work out with the hindsight feature because our, our GoPros keep dying on us when we use it. Just choose through battery. But when you can have something happen and go up and hit record and it goes back 15 or 30 seconds to capture that hook set or that, you know, pheasant flush or whatever the case is, it'll, it'll save you a lot of headaches in the editing room. Hi. So hindsight different than looping two different features you're thinking of. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think it's essentially the same thing. Uh, it's just on the, uh, we've got 11s now. So okay. the, the new version of loop is called hindsight and it's like a, it's a pre-record feature, pre-record function. Yeah on a camera so it's constantly looping and then you can just hit record and it'll it'll save whatever you can either set it to 15 seconds prior to hitting the button or 30 seconds prior yeah i had a used seven that fried up on me and i was i think i was running it too cold i was always running external power i don't know what happened maybe it wasn't good to start with now i got a brand new nine kind of getting slowly getting my way up there but i basically always run them off either pass through power or plug in. I'd never run it off battery anymore. Cause like, even when I'm just doing stuff around the farm, like I don't want to have to go switch a battery. Um, if I don't have to, like if I'm running the tractor, so I just bring a power bank and plug them in. And I don't know, maybe that's hard on them to always be running that way, but it's going to be hard on them, but it's the way to go. Really. If you yeah. don't want to have to deal with dead batteries, we did that. We got one of those YOLO deals yeah. for the boat now where we plug the pole into the, into the light socket and it just runs constant power on them. But yeah, I mean, in cold weather, um, I had fives. Let's see, I had, I don't know, I've had a whole bunch of them, and we run them ice fishing all the time, and we'll run them underwater when we're ice fishing, Ooh. and that just that kills them pretty much instantly. But you get some pretty cool stuff under the ice, so sometimes it's worth it. But it's pretty hard on them. Yeah, are you just hard on battery life or hard on the like you notice those cameras quit working pretty fast? Well, both. I mean, the bat. Anytime those batteries get cold, no matter what you're doing, uh, they're going to burn up pretty quick. But yeah, well, uh, we've gone through some cameras. I mean, we're hard on our gear. You know, it's like hunting, you yeah, know, hunting and fishing and trying to film it. Gear gets beat up, and, and the GoPros take the worst of it. So we we go through those uh, quite a bit. Every couple of years, get some new ones. But yeah, that's not too bad if you can make it. Like even like if you're doing this full time and you can make it through a full like a twelve months, it's yeah. probably good enough. I was trying to film looping shed hunting up in north dakota and i to be fair i started a little too early it's the same weekend i usually start and have had great success in the past but it was five below and my gopro started seizing up so i started just using my phone to record bits and pieces Mm and 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 it kind of just put up with it so but yeah that's the one question i've always had and like with the fishing i'm surprised you don't see more boats with like surround view gopros like three, four GoPro set up back corner, front corner, wind windshield, and just have them all. I wonder if there's a way you can get like three or four of them to do hindsight at the same time or loop at the same time. So you can just hit that button and like just fish when something happens, all four of them got it. You got all these different angles. Yeah. 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 I, we were actually wondering about that. I've never done that before, but with the app, I kind of wondered if you could, you could do that. 
Um, we normally are, are only one running one and sometimes two, but uh, we were thinking about that too. And a lot of boats you'll see in some of these videos that are out there, you'll see a lot of cameras running now. Yeah. And, and talk about using your phone for things. I've, I've got an iPhone and I've used this on Prairie Sportsman. I mean, as a complimentary, you yeah. know, I need to get a shot of something. And the only thing I have is my phone because it'll shoot 4K. 4K. So and if it's close, like, and you don't have to blow it up very high. Like, if you need to zoom in, that thing starts to fall apart. But yeah, if you're just like, right. like, if your dog's on a perfect point and you don't have a camera and you're like, I want to get this, like, your phone at that distance would be perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I use it a lot, especially for reels nowadays for oh, social yeah. stuff. You have you know, to do it for reels. So um, simple. Yeah, I've, I've been using the voice feature on my GoPros a lot. Obviously, fishing, not hunting. But yeah. it's fishing I use. And I wonder if that's one way you can loop them. Like, if you just talk loud enough and you say, like, you know, capture, start, stop, will all of them do it at the same time? But Yeah, that'd probably work. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So we talked a little bit right before we got on that that you're known for a few different things, like prairie sportsmen, on on the airwaves from PBS, big. That's a big production. That's a full on production, long format video storytelling. But you also do the Sporting Journal Radio. Probably started out as a radio show, switched to a podcast. Same thing, um, yep. and now you're you're kind of bringing everything under the umbrella of your new Fish Hunt Forever brand. So, what's the journey been like? I'm the same way. I come up with a lot of ideas and I start doing different things, but was there, was there an original dream of like, this is what I want to do. And then things slowly started to add, or did you always kind of see yourself being pretty diversified in the outdoors? It's, it's interesting that you bring that word up because originally I was a radio guy uh, and I wanted to do outdoors radio. And when I came up with the idea, that was still a possibility. <clears throat> like Sirius XM or like froggy 99.9. <laughs> that's funny you know froggy i yeah, used to live I, in fargo so i yeah. oh there you go yeah yeah i uh we used to make fun of froggy all the time <laughs> i had a lot of, and i had a lot of good friends that worked there you know when were you in fargo uh i moved there for college in 2013 and we just moved down here to the twin cities for my wife's uh residency in 2021 so that eight year stretch okay. i was in fargo and i just left in in 2012 is when i left fargo so where are you at now just missed you uh, well, I live uh, about three hours west of Minneapolis near Montevideo. Okay. So I'm, um, you know, out by the South Dakota border, uh, yeah. a couple hours south of Fargo. In the middle of the prairie. Yeah. Yeah. I love it here. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So just to kind of go back to your question a little bit, to, to kind of talk about where it all started. You know, I was a radio guy. I went to Brown Institute for radio, decided I wanted to do, I wanted to marry my broadcast career and and find a way to do it in the outdoors so I could hunt and fish. Like I, I lived in North Dakota for five years and I didn't even buy a hunting license when I first moved there because I was working all the time doing radio. <clears throat> and I remember working for the KFGO group up there and we were the NDSU Bison uh, flagship. Okay. So every, every other Saturday and yeah, you know, in September and October, we, we had to be at the Fargo dome and I had to be there at seven in the morning to hand out t-shirts to drunk college kids and all my buddies would be texting me pictures of mallards that they're shooting in cornfields, yeah. sometimes real, you know, 15 minutes away. And I was just, it was just eating me up inside. So I, I finally decided I needed to, I needed to do something different. And they came in and changed the format. I was running uh, one of the rock stations, and then also the K fan affiliate up there. I was doing a, a midday sports show with Jack Michaels and I was 
doing an outdoor show on KFAN in the morning on Saturdays locally. And they changed the format on the rock station and they let a couple of us go. It's just something that's happened in radio. Um, happens to everybody in radio. They change formats and, and uh, just decide, just decide they don't want you working there anymore, no matter what, which is just the weirdest. It's the strangest thing to me, but it's the way radio works. And Matt Soberg had just started up Minnesota Sporting Journal magazine. Okay. And I called him up and I said, Hey, you know, I'm looking to do something in the outdoors. I'm sick of not being able to hunt, hunt and fish while I do this job. And I'm looking for, you know, some sort of media type type job. And so I got hired on to sell ads and within six months I ended up buying the magazine from him because he got, he took a job with uh, rough grouse society to edit okay. their magazine. So I started up sporting journal radio as a way to complement the magazine because radio is what I knew. I had contacted all these radio stations. I said, Hey, I'm going to, put out an, a one hour outdoors show. I want to syndicate it, uh, run it across the network here in Minnesota and the, the upper Midwest region. So I ended up growing that that started in 2012 in September, sitting at game fair in September of 2000 or uh, August, I suppose, 2012, it was me, Matt Soberg and Ben Bredigan, who's with Onyx. And the three of us are sitting there talking and, uh, and we we're kind of brainstorming ideas of how we can promote this magazine. I said, well, guys, I'm, I, I know radio, I'm going to start up a radio show. We'll call it Minnesota Sporting Journal Radio. I get it on a bunch of stations and uh, like, okay, that sounds good. Who should you, who, who should we get for the first guest? And then Laura Scherer walked by I'm like, ah, we should, we should get, we should interview Laura for the first show. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, let's, you know, what should I ask her? What kind of, you know, what should we talk about? Well, you should ask her to marry you. <laughs> okay so so we sit i grabbed laura we sit down on a picnic table i'm like all right so my first question is will you marry me and she starts laughing and uh she's like well we've only known each other five minutes and i say yeah who cares whatever she goes all right let's <laughs> let's let's do it i'm like okay i don't even need to ask my follow-up question of why not here on the list. <laughs> so that that's how that radio show started and it just grew and grew and grew and um uh about 20 2015 or so form communications out of Fargo. Um, I had some friends that worked there, did radio, did TV there. And they called me up said, Hey, we're thinking about starting this Northland outdoors TV show. Uh, you were our first choice as, as the host for it. And I was like, cool, but you got to stop publishing your magazine. Cause we're going to start up our own magazine and you got to move to Brainerd and all this. I was like, Oh man, I, all right, it's it's chance to do TV. So my dream was always to do this outdoor radio show and make it big enough to make a living at it. And as I did it for a while and I watched radio kind of yeah. do one of these and everybody's starting to do podcasts. I'm like, ah, podcasts, amateurs. Right. I'm a radio guy. And now, now it's funny, but now when people ask me what I do, I, I depend. It depends on their age. If they're older, I tell them I do a radio show. If they're younger, I tell them I do a podcast. Right. Like it, it, it's funny how that's changed. And, uh, but I, as I did it, I realized maybe TV was going to be the next thing in my career. And this opportunity came up. So I moved to Brainerd, stopped publishing my magazine. They told me we were going to do three seasons of it. After 11 months, they pulled the plug in the entire thing, let the whole staff go. So I decided to diversify and do the radio show, uh, uh, I do some other things, started the YouTube channel, turned the radio show into a podcast and Prairie Sportsman was a show on Pioneer PBS out of Granite Falls. And they had a five-year hiatus and they were coming back and they were looking for all new staff, new producer, new editor, new host. 
and it was exactly the same time that Northland Outdoors had stopped making a TV show. So I called up Pioneer, said, hey, I want to move back to Western Minnesota. Brainerd's fine. I'd rather live in the prairie. And uh, so it worked out perfect that I came back. But I said, one of the conditions is that I'm going to continue doing all my other things. So that if Prairie Sportsman goes away, because we're only funded every two years by LCCMR and lottery ticket money. So we get a two-year grant every two years to produce that show. Right. And if we sold enough advertising or our underwriters, it's underwriters on the public TV side of things, uh, potentially we could continue the show without that grant. And that that's always a goal. But realistically, that that show is funded by LCCMR every two years. So I said, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I have all these other irons in the fire and diversify what I do so that if in this ever changing fast paced world, if one thing goes away, I've got all these other things that I'm doing so that I just, you know, nothing, if one thing drops off, another one pops up and I don't change the way I want to live my life. Yeah. Well, and that's incredibly important um, for someone in your shoes. Cause this is like your full-time gig. It's not like you're doing this on nights and weekends. Like this is my day job. And well, so, I'm also doing it on nights and weekends. Well, we also do it on <laughs> nights and weekends, but it's, it's yeah. like, if this goes like for me, for example, I'm still an engineer. I still have a day job. My wife's a pediatric pharmacist. She's got a day job. I do this only on nights and weekends to produce sure. it, to do all this stuff. It's, it's a, it's a sweat equity project right now. And so if for whatever reason, a deal doesn't go through a partnership, doesn't pan out, you know, Oh, well we built our budget based on our day jobs, not based on the dream. Well, if you do it on your own, like that's where I'm like, oh, man, like, like imagine if you do, you quit your job because you got this one big sponsor for your, for your effort, whatever it is, shows, content, radio, and they'd say, hey, you know, our CEO wants to switch directions. We're axing our entire marketing budget for the next two years. You're like, oh, shoot, like I I am now broke. (laughs) Yeah, and that's exactly right. I mean, I put all my eggs in one basket twice. Uh, You know, for 10 years, I worked in that one building in Fargo doing radio, and I just walked in one day, and they said, yeah, we're changing the format. Yeah. Go clearing out your desk. Like, Is that something where they just don't feel like they can change a format and keep the old guest and make the format actually change? Like they're just worried it's going to like it's not going to be the change they wanted. Like they need to do a cut break, fresh start. It depends on the situation. And to be fair, my boss at that place probably didn't like me. We, We had some we had some conflicts over the years. But for the most part, things have been going really well. Uh we were, I think we were running that one rock station, I think was running for five or six years, really smoothly doing well, but the change they were going to was, I think, I can't remember what they changed to. I think they changed to a, a talk station, either went from rock 102 to talk 102 or Jack FM. I can't remember which one, but either one didn't have any local talent except for maybe one guy. Oh, So it was all, it was all just like songs and liners. So no DJs and takes a monkey to program a radio station like that or they went all talk i think it was rush limbaugh so it was all syndicated Mm. conservative talk show hosts so they didn't need they didn't need a guy like me or some of the other people that they let go at that time they just didn't need a staff for it anymore gotcha so it was a it was a cost-cutting move really and uh so and it happens and so you know like i i almost thanked him when it happened really it was the change i needed anyway and looking back on it, it's it's still one of the best things that ever happened to me. But I, I just thought it was funny because 
people weren't just like banging down the door to go do radio in Fargo, North Dakota. And <laughs> here was a guy that had lived there for 12 years that wanted to live in North Dakota and wanted to do radio that has worked in country. He's worked in rock. He's done, uh, you know, I've done talk, I've done sports. I've done every format you can really do willing to work wherever and, and do radio because I enjoyed it. And, uh, and to let somebody like that go, I think is pretty short-sighted, but I can't really complain about it now. My yeah. Kid. So you're, you're way, you're doing the more of the dream and less of the Saturdays at the Fargo dome. So, Oh man. Yeah. I was where, and I was doing a local music show on Sunday nights. So oh, uh, for, for a number of years, I was either in the building seven days a week or doing work seven days a week, one way or another. And uh, it was fun, but didn't let, didn't allow you to have much of a real life. Yeah. So it sounds like all things turned out pretty darn well now and the diversifying, that's something that I'm very interested in. And I think it's important I, don't, I think it's an important thing to think about and really fully think through. I think there could be some dangers to diversifying too early. Like you got, especially like if someone, for example, you've been doing this for, it sounds like close to two decades on your own um, or getting there. So you really got things dialed in on some things and then you got new projects that you kind of sprinkle in and, and you kind of have a system. But if someone's like today, they hear your story, Brett, and they go, I want to, that's my new 10 year goal to get there. Well, I don't know if it's a great idea to start a YouTube, start a digital media company, start a radio show, start all these things on day one, because it's like, you, you kind of got to focus at one thing at a time. And so I've always been a strong proponent of like, don't quit your day job. If you lose your day job, that's different. But like, if you got a good day job and you can do the first thing at night, start there. Like you said, like radio back in the day, you kind of thought of podcasters as like the, the the radio guys that were cheating and it's kind of true because there's no barrier to entry in a podcast you just start it up and now the market is your barrier to entry whether you're good or not is whether you make it or not there's no producer that has to say yes this is the person we're going to put them on the show and so maybe that's what you start with and then you start getting good at running a camera maybe you start with doing some brand photography or videography maybe that's do you think that's kind of a, a better way to start with the goal to diversify. So you have these irons in the fire. Would you pick like, what would be, I guess the proper question is like, how would you start it in today's world? Like what would be like, first off I'd do this. Once that's solid, then I would add this and this. That's always the tough thing to figure out how to start because when I, I did start my first business as a side job to, to complement my full-time gig and it was voiceover work. And I was doing voiceovers for a number of different companies around the world. Uh, I was doing some video games. I was doing uh, Jason Mitchell's hunting show. I was doing the elite archery respect the game TV show. Um, and then I was doing a production company on the side too, for concert commercials. So Jade presents in Fargo hmm. was doing concerts all over the place. And basically he'd say, all right, I got <laughs> a lot of times it was these rap artists and I'd have no like tech nine tech nine came to Fargo like a hundred times. I couldn't tell you who tech nine is, but I did all his commercials. And either I would voice him or I had one of my other radio buddies that had a big, big, strong voice. I'd, I'd record, give him a script. I'd have him record it. And then I'd put it all together, put the music, mix it all together. And then a lot of those concerts, commercials you heard in North Dakota, Minnesota, Montana, Wyoming, all these, all these places for Jade was, was stuff that I was doing. And then the voiceover market kind of, kind of dried up. 
And so, so what I did to start was look for what my strengths were and, and what I, what I thought I could do to make it as a business. And at that time, you know, the internet changed everything. It changed radio. It changed all these things, podcasts, uh, TV shows. It, it allowed everybody to basically have their own TV station mm -hmm. and connected everybody around the world. So, you know, voiceover work used to be big money. And I thought I'd be able to do that for a long time. And then the companies like Fiverr came out and you could hire a guy in Wichita for five bucks to, to read the specials at Taco Bell. And, you know, he'd sit in his home studio, just like we are, and be like, come to Taco Bell, you know, for, for whatever, for $2 chalupas. And he'd email that off to somebody in, you know, uh, right. Northern Colorado. And, and now all the people that were doing voiceovers to like, I was a member of a couple of different voiceover agencies, all that work, all that work changed. So you start off with what your strengths are and what you really want to do. Because if it's, if it's a strength and a passion, there's always going to be roadblocks and you're always going to have days where like, why am I doing this? You know, is it worth it? Is it worth the headache? Is it worth the hassle? And in my opinion, I love being my own boss and I don't need to drive brand new trucks. I don't need to live in big fancy houses so I can, I can handle making less money doing what I love. There are some jobs that pay pretty well doing this as well, but you, you learn to realize that money is not everything at the end of the day. Quality of life is better than quantity. You learn what your strengths are and find out, where, where your strengths and your passions meet and you, and you work for it. And then you make sure you're flexible. Yeah. So when I, when I watched the, the voiceover market kind of dry up, I was like, all right, you know, now what I do. And I went from producing commercials for the band seven dust. We were doing all their national touring commercials. We, I went from, you know, seven dust to it's elite archery's respect the game. And I, and I realized that, I wanted to get into the, the outdoor. It's, it's the same story as the outdoor radio show. I wanted to do more things in the outdoor side. So I, I took the voiceover and the radio show and the voiceover work and started getting into the outdoor side of things. Cause at that time, you know, the, you know, like the late, I don't know what to call it, the late, like Oh eight or Oh nine. Mm -hmm. When, when I started doing this stuff, there were, there was a lot of outdoor brands and TV shows that needed voiceover guys, but, there weren't many voiceover guys that knew how to hunt and fish. So I, I would get like, I, I do the next bite on the discovery channel and my buddy, I, to be fair, my buddy is the editor and shooter, Jake flaw. And, and, uh, he, he'd, he'd be like, man, we got this voiceover guy. He's, he's really good, but he doesn't know anything about fishing. So a lot of times when we put a, a you know, a word or a technique in there, he'll mis mispronounce it or, he won't know what we're talking about. So the inflection will be all wrong. We need a guy. I'm like, well, dude, hello, I'm a voiceover guy. You know, I can do it. And I've gotten a lot of gigs because I understand the industry. I understand hunting and fishing. So there was a need for voiceover work in, in the outdoor world. So that, so at the same time I was starting the radio show and the magazine and all that, I was doing a lot more voiceover work in the outdoor space too. So it's, it's all about, taking your strengths and your passions and putting them together and then being flexible enough to understand that as times change, you're going to have to change with it. And I'll tell one more story that, that, that 
paints this picture very well. When I was at KFGO, we had one of the best news departments, probably in the state of North Dakota. KFGO news department is still pretty good. Um, but right around early 2000s, when all these radio stations started having websites, gosh, this is making me sound old now. Man. <laughs> oh, gosh. When you think about before the internet, like, I, oh, man. Anyway radio station websites weren't a thing until around that 2000 mark or so and kind of when everybody started having websites i guess and i can't remember if we were owned by clear channel at the time but they wanted they wanted the news department to just start putting the news on the websites and they're like uh, and these guys have been doing they were award winners great great news journalists been doing it for a long time they're like nah nobody goes to the internet for news Think about that statement right. and where we are today. Nobody goes to the internet for news. And it took at least a year and they were, you know, they were typing, they were using computers and they were typing their scripts to read their news stories on the air. All they had to do was copy and paste that onto the website. Throw in the, two pictures you know, the, and you got a story. And it took a full year to get them to think, to have that mindset that this is the future, that people are going to go to the internet for their news and to watch that transition it, you know, I learned a lot watching that happen. And now obviously I think the, you know, they're still radio first, but the internet is a close second, if not first with them when they go to the, they put news straight on the websites now, or somebody's dedicated to that job, but you have to, you have to be flexible enough to watch the world evolve around you. And, and, and the, the pace that technology changes these days, you have to be flexible enough to, take what you're doing and apply it to whatever the latest technology is, you know, yeah. we're watching social media uh, change and pl different platforms come and go. You have to be constantly on your toes, especially if you're your own, your own business, you have to stay alive. And to do that, you have to evolve with the times. Yeah. I mean, a, a good case in point of that is like, look at what's going on right now. I'm sure you've heard the, the Oliver Anthony song, mm -hmm. Richmond, North of Richmond. And now you see like, Everyone that's got a cricket or a printer and a T-shirt press is making, um, you know, Richmond, north of Richmond merchandise, whether it's like I'm an old soul in a new world or I've, you know, overtime hours for bullshit pay and they're selling all this merch and it's blowing up. Like I watched one guy, he's, he has a hat company and he's using his four-wheeler and his like 16-foot dump trailer to bring hat boxes to the post office <laughs> twice a day. Because the song's blowing up and everyone wants that hat, which I'm like, man, I, I don't know what, what, like, copyright laws are, but, like, if it's his song and you're using his direct lyrics, like, I, and putting it on a hat, like, I, where's the line here? I feel like that's, right. could he, obviously, it sounds like Oliver Anthony doesn't care and doesn't want the money anyway, but I'm sure if there's a label involved, that would not be flying. It's the Wild West right now, man. I mean, that the internet has allowed everybody to be their own boss. Right. The flip side of that is it's also saturated the market. Yeah, so you have to stand out. Standing out is is the the hardest part, and that's another thing you got to constantly. You got to either be. Uh, I better not say that. You you've got to find some people just naturally can stand out based on certain act <laughs> certain attributes, uh, but you have to you either have to find a niche that nobody else is doing and still do it really well and hope you get lucky that everybody notices like Anthony Oliver. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Oliver Anthony. What's his name? Oliver, Oliver Anthony. Anthony. Um, 
That's a problem when you have two first names, <laughs> uh, you know, and that's, and that's something else too. When you start a company or you start something like sporting journal radio, the name is plays such an important role in, in, in and can play such a huge role in standing out and getting noticed and being successful. And when we started sporting journal radio, it was Minnesota sporting journal radio. And then when we expanded into North Dakota, I was like, well, we got to drop Minnesota. And then when Northland Outdoors uh, brought me on as, as a host of the TV show, they ended up buying the radio show. So I continued doing the radio show, but we changed it to Northland Outdoors Radio. And then after a year, they gave it back to me. So I became Sporting Journal Radio again. And now people are still confused. There's still radio affiliates out there running promos for Northland Outdoors seven or eight years later. Like it, it's the name can be so important. And yeah. when we started the podcast, having the name radio in our name, I think turns off a certain generation of listeners that want to hear a pot. They want to hear podcasts and something like, man, I want to hear, I want to hear swear words, you know, or whatever. Like some people think it's so cool because you can swear on a podcast, but we're a radio show first. Right. That also does a podcast. So, you know, we, we've, we've been trying to figure out if we should change the name again to drop the word radio. And at this point, after 11 years of doing the show, we don't want to change the name again, but having our YouTube channel is sporting journal radio. We'd put up a, a fishing video. We'd go fish. Dan and I would go catch a bunch of fish, whatever, make a vlog video out of it and put it up there. Well, nobody's going to go to a, a YouTube channel that has the word radio in it to watch a fishing vlog. You're right. So ultimately that's where fish hunt forever came from. And we started that channel for our vlog videos and our films. And we have sporting journal radio for the podcast. So having a name, that is easily recognizable. Like I go back to meat eater all the time because it's just the perfect name for the show. There's because a lot you know, of yeah brands like that, like meat eater. Perfect. Go hunt. Perfect. Onyx. Like, per like you think about it, like that's like, you want to be on the X, like you're a waterfall guy. How important is being on the X? Like it's everything you're off. I, I I agree with that, but I will say, I shouldn't say this because Onyx is my big title sponsor, but for a long time, you'd get people that would call it Onyx or, uh, you know, they didn't realize it was actually saying on the, like on the X. I just realized you it know? like two years ago and I've been using Onyx for yeah. eight, but yeah, it's <laughs> right? Onyx. Um, like it's kind of like Huck or Hook or whatever it's supposed to be. Everyone I says I thought Huck. it was Huck for a long time. It's supposed to be yeah. Hook. I, th I still Hook. say Huck. Yeah. But Tethered is a one I love. Like there's, it's it's not a cool brand, but then there's the subliminal messaging of like, yeah, I do want to be tethered to the tree. I don't want to fall out. Right. You know, there's a lot of cool brands like that where you're right. Like the name matters and, and, and it's I, hard. And I see so many people do like X, Y, Z outdoors or my last name outdoors or, you know, this state <laughs> outdoors. And it's like, it's hard. Yeah. That's a very common word. <laughs> and, and honestly, that what you just said, we have sat and brainstormed that very thing. I, I mean, I bet, I bet it, we sat for like three years trying to come up with the name fish hunt forever because every name we came up with, it's like, we go look at the, at the channels that were doing well out there. And it was like somebody's name outdoors. And I was like, I do not want to have, I do not want to be blank outdoors. I think but, it works if you were on the, like, so jury outdoors, probably the biggest name out there with the outdoors in the name, but they did it. 30 Early. years ago. And now they're, right. they are one of the biggest names in whitetail television. So it doesn't matter. 
But if you started it now, now you're competing against like 10,000 other channels that also are starting now. The only thing I will say, while it's a very generic name, it tells you exactly what it is. Right. You're never so, going to mistake it for a reality show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that that was the biggest thing is like we wanted to have a name like Blank Outdoors without copying everybody else that went blank outdoors right you want to know so, we're fishing and hunting exactly and and we're going to here to we're here to promote the sport forever for the rest of time <laughs> yeah so that's where fish hunt forever came from yeah i had the same struggle i didn't spend three years on it i spent six months trying to figure out what to name this show I, the first thought really i came out of the gate going it's going to be the out, uh, outdoor entrepreneurship podcast hmm. and that was already taken by someone that wants that they do like uh like RV overlanding, like more travel oh, okay. outdoors stuff. That's why I haven't heard of them. Yeah, it's not in our demographic at all, but they took the name. And so, and then Eric Clark from The Okayest Hunter said, I would not use the word outdoor. I wouldn't use the word sportsman. I would just come up with something else. And so I wrote a list business, hunting, and I just started writing words down that were described each one. And eventually I found, like, oh, hey, wait a second. There's, you know, a buck in both lists, whether it's a dollar or it's a deer. And so then I'm like, well, let's just call it the Two Bucks Podcast, and then it stands for both, you know, the bucks that grow antlers and the bucks that pay for them. And so I, that's great. Uh, I was wondering where that name came from, and the idea to have an outdoor entrepreneur type podcast, I think, is brilliant too, because everybody wants to have a job in the outdoors now. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and you, there's no other podcast doing it. There's been a few. Eric Clark actually had one for a while, and he said like, we dropped it, and we're only really using it as a lead generation tool to show other brands what we could do with digital marketing. And so he said, go for it. You, you're not going to step on any of our toes. And I looked for a long time because I didn't want to, like you said, be the same as someone else and just do, you know, Minnesota Outdoors or, you know, Whitetail Tips and Tricks podcast number 37. Um because there's so many people already doing that and probably doing it better than I could. And I, I kind of, you know, bring it full circle. You mentioned like start with your strength and a passion. Well, I combine two passions and a strength, hunting, business, and I can talk forever. And so it's like, well, I might as well let's have a, a hunting business podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that, I mean, that's perfect. And, um, you know, I, I'm part of this organization called the glow. Now the association of great lakes, outdoor writers, and that's, you know, what you're talking about is essentially what we're, what we're trying to do with that is, is teach people how to work in the outdoor industry. And there's so many, and, and nowadays that there's so many more people that have the ability to do that because of the internet and mm -hmm. YouTube and things like that. I think there's a big market for, for what you're doing. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it, I hope I inspire some people. Like my goal would be to eventually have a guest on that I find organically. And I'm like, hey, let's have you on the podcast. And we're having this podcast. And they're like, yeah, I started this business because I listened to your podcast back like when you launched it four years ago. And I was like, you know what? I am going to start this. And just to have, like, be able to meet someone where you're actually inspired to make a change in their life I think would be like the coolest moment of doing this whole podcast because that's why I do it is to help help people learn how to do it, how to grow. I mean, I've already had guests on. It's like, hey, as soon as you asked me to be on – I looked at all your episodes and I, you know, I, I reached out to the accountant you had on for small business. I reached mm -hmm. out to the digital marketing guy you had on to ask him some questions about how I set up my website with pixel and all these different things. And it's like, great. I love it. I'm glad I can help. Let me know what's your next problem and see if we can get someone on to help with that. Yeah. 
That's cool. And I think, uh, you know, we, I had, I ran ads for my tax guy aimed at people have, with an outdoor business. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite podcasts we did was with Jay Siemens. And mm. we talked about fishing and talked about Jay and all of his stuff. And then like the last half hour, just uh, Jay and I just nerded out about video creation and running a YouTube channel and, and content creation basically. Yeah. And, uh, and it's been a popular one because there's so many people doing that and wanting to learn how to do it better. You know, what's interesting is like when we see, we talked a little bit about AI, but like I'm using AI to basically edit this entire podcast. I can do the video podcast editing in like 15 seconds. I post it to YouTube and then I have a different AI tool that I put the link in and it pulls like the 20 clips that have the most potential to go viral and it edits them, it cap it it frames them for vertical, so social like reels and, and TikTok. It captions them, it adds emphasis and highlighting on words of inflection, it'll add emojis, it it trims them to like sixty seconds, and then it gives you a description of like this is why we think this is gonna go because you have a full story, an engaging hook, blah, blah, blah. And it they have no idea that it's hunting. Like the AI tool is definitely not designed for hunting podcasts. But the first one I threw up on TikTok, it went for 60,000 views on a channel that I really haven't been posting on because I was in the process of taking on our second show. Um, and also in the first post goes for like, I think it's at 65,000 right now, which I know on TikTok, there's plenty of people that regularly hit that. But for 2,000 followers and I haven't posted anything in four months, I was like, wow, this actually good. works. Yeah. You know, anytime That's I get close or exceed my follower base, obviously something's working. I'll tell you, AI is about the scariest thing right now for for guys like us that do do this stuff. Well, here's you what know. I was going to counter with that. I think it's very scary for anyone in a white collar role because if you sit behind a computer for well, your day too. job, like that's scary. That AI can probably do what you do in the short term. Yeah. I think blue collar roles, it'll be a long time before AI even gets close to to putting that workforce out. But then it's like, well, what's life then? And it really comes down to like entertainment. Like, the, like yeah. there's always going to be a need for some form of entertainment, and I just don't see, like, AI, completely AI-generated entertainment really taking a strong foothold, at least not for now. Like, because if people know it's AI, like, do I really want to watch AI hunting, like, where everything's fake and I can tell? I don't know, man. But look at reality TV. People, true. People know that's fake, and they sit and watch The Bachelor or whatever garbage is on television all the time. And, you know, I, I'm just waiting. What scares me about it, Cause I agree with you. I, I honestly, I like a hunting show or a fishing show is going to be tough to be replaced by AI as a photographer. I think photographer photography work is going to change because AI can influence so much. You can go out there and take a picture of a, of a blank field and AI can put a farmstead in there and a sunset and a flock of geese going through like it. Photography yeah. work is scary and some creative work, some creative workers are going to lose jobs as, as well as some of the, the guys that sit in an office at a desk all the time. But, there, there are, there are a lot of things about AI that, that freak me out. And when it comes to even TV, when you can put uh, 60 years younger Harrison Ford in a movie and have him saying brand new lines, you know, right. I, I mean, may, Biden may have died three years ago, right? It might be, either way, I think he might've, you know, yeah. where it counts. <laughs> But that's that's a scary thing, like especially yeah. when you look at, you know, say like a world leader, um, somebody that in maybe like in a country like North Korea, where you have a, some sort of dictatorship, 
they might be able to computer generate the deep faking. Yeah. A president or a, or a, or a leader, and then they can make them say whatever they want on TV. Now like that, that, I mean, that's getting it going down some deep rabbit holes. Uh, well, I don't but, think it's that deep because deep faking is here. And, and if anyone wanted to use it for that purpose, like now we have to like start analyzing everything you see before <laughs> we had a hard enough trouble figuring out if what we were seeing is real. Yeah. <laughs> just like, is it out of context or not? And then she's like, okay, well, just show me the real video. Show me the video of him saying this, and then I can decide if it's real. Now it's like, well, is this video real? Because he said it, but now I don't believe this is a real video. This might just be a deep fake video, and the president didn't actually say anything on this topic. I agree. It's kind of scary. I think I don't know what way it's going to go. I just I feel a little bit confident that like what we do in the outdoors like i feel like there's always going to be a huge population of people that have the passion for the outdoors and you can't like maybe like some people will be like oh virtual reality hunting is the same thing i don't have to leave my house but i don't think many of us will i think everyone's going to want to still get out on the lake still get out in the field i think they're going to want to watch authentic entertainment in that space and i just feel like it's going to be so hard to replicate like you're going to be able to tell like Hey, yeah, we're pheasant hunting and a goose flushed out of a point. Like, well, that's not quite right, AI. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're right. As long as as long as people keep the interest in the outdoors, you know, yeah. that probably scares me more than getting replaced by AI. Is just having, you know, either hunting rights taken away, yeah, or people just can, you know, losing interest. And I I don't see people losing interest. I think people say there's more people losing interest than there actually are. If that makes sense, like I, oh I, yeah, I, don't I think, think, well, I think our... it depends on who you talk to. Like, like yeah, like I listened to Howard Vincent, president and CEO of Pheasants Forever, say that basically every year the average age of the hunting community that buys tick licenses goes up one year, which mm. points to like we're not getting anyone new. Like anyone new, we're losing with someone falling out, but the base is staying the same, and it's just the same group of people that just get older and older every year, and they're not being replaced. But then you go talk to someone like Matt Ranella and he says there's way too many people. And so, <laughs> yeah. like, you get views on both sides. I think the people that are in it are getting more passionate and they're doing more. So you used to, like, yes. do your whitetail camp in Minnesota. Well, now we do that. Plus we go to Wyoming and go elk hunting, and then we go up to, you know, Tazen and we go fishing. And so it's, the, it's like the feeling of more pressure and more people. But it's mm-hmm. the same people just doing more different activities because the access to do all these things has increased. The access – uh the ability I think to do it not the access the access one yeah. that's a tricky word because people think of it as like land access i'm saying like opportunity knowledge of what you can do the ability to to take vacation yes. and go up to tazan 50 years ago no one even knew there was a lake there now you right. can watch you know brett's trip and all the video they did out on tazan tv and be like oh i want to book a trip there and you can go next year like it's that easy so i think it's maybe just the appearance of more people yeah. And if, if, I mean, and getting into this topic could be a lengthy topic too, but the, the limiting access is a bigger worry than the amount of hunters that we have out there. And that right. uh, Matt Rennell, I think has a point that we keep bringing more and more hunters into it and our access keeps diminishing. It's just going to create negative uh, experiences in the field and people are going to lose interest in hunting anyway. Yeah. So, and what happened, and I'm a bow hunter and I blame myself partly for this, but Back in the day, 20, 30 years ago, you could go knock during the, during the deer hunting season, you could go knock on the Johnson farm and like, Oh, sure. You want to take your son and walk through there today? Go, go right ahead. You know, just, you know, shoot. We got too many does. Now either someone in the Johnson family has got trail cameras up four stands, depending on the wind, they got a target buck. 
or or their neighbors leased up that property. So by that one hunter taking up 80 acres or you know 160 acres with 320, whatever the case may be, that's shutting down some access to, to some other hunters. Now that combined with the loss of CRP acreage, uh, more private land getting bought up, uh, some public land, you know, maybe disappearing in places or getting shut off. That is a bigger issue to me. I mean, I'm always going to be pro recruitment, but when people say we have to recruit all these people or else hunting is going to go away, right. there, there are some arguments against that in the sense that a lot of the people that are saying this are ones that rely on large numbers of sportsmen and women paying membership dues or buying hunting licenses to fund the DNR, whatever the case may be, they're reliant on numbers. And I do believe that there are strength in numbers when you go to the Capitol and say, Hey, we need this bill passed. And there's 500,000 deer hunters behind me that agree with me. Mm -hmm. That's when politicians start listening. But when you recruit people just to recruit people and you saw it during COVID, it was great that everybody wanted to go out and do these things in the outdoors. But when you saw people, that were right. you know all the state parks got trashed in a lot of areas uh, places got crowded people that didn't and i don't want to blame them because they just didn't know but people that didn't know what they were doing were out there causing some negative experiences for people right it, and it, that's either, it's like causing a multitude like <clears throat> one person causes the has the same effect of like five in terms of pressure because you're not doing it like yeah. it's the whole verbiage of like I'd rather share the woods with a dozen great bow hunters than one bad one. Exactly, and I and I'm again I'm I'm pro recruit. I'm not trying to knock recruitment or getting because obviously I, I want more and more people to enjoy what I do and I want this to to last forever. Right. But there's a lot of education that has to go on with it, and and recruitment can't be the only thing to prolong the traditions that we love. It's when people talk about prolonging the tradition or recruiting people, what's the, what's the stronger message? I think it's prolonging the tradition because the more people see positive experiences in the outdoors, the more they're going to want to do it versus just grabbing a hundred people and taking them right. pheasant hunting. I feel like fishing or something. I feel like, like what you're saying is kind of what I feel is like retainment is the most important of the three R's. Yeah. Like we need to really retain what we have. And <clears throat> when I say retainment, I almost feel like let's retain the hunting family, like the hunting lineages. So like by that, like if I have a son one day, like trying to just build up that tradition so that my kids are excited to hunt and then their kids are excited after them to hunt and we're, you know, not dropping off because that's where they're going to really learn from grandpa, from dad, from deer camp, all like how to do it. And then maybe then maybe we can focus on recruitment. Like he brings his buddy to deer camp and then that buddy learns. And then, you know, and then maybe his buddy's dad is like, Hey man, you brought my kid to deer camp. He, he's not stopped talking about it. Like, can yeah. I learn? So then now I can take my son hunting. And so then I, you know what I mean? Like very like heavy retainment with very slow structured recruitment. Well thought out because you already see like the COVID num the COVID balloon popped and, and a lot of the people yeah. that are like, oh, I'm going to start hunting and get my own food because the grocery store is empty. Well, they're not hunting anymore. They realized it was kind of hard. <laughs> takes a lot of work, takes a lot of gear, takes a lot of time. And if you like a lot of them didn't, you know, they're, they're falling off, right? The people that just did it for COVID were seeing it kind of return back down to normal. Yeah. So, and, and I would, I don't necessarily want to see that. And, and not everybody had the chance to learn from, from dad and grandpa, like, like right. I did. And it sounds and, like well, you did imagine too. trying to learn to hunt as an not late onset adult yeah. with no guidance, like because, because your freezer's empty, you're like, Oh, I'm going to buy a deer tag. I guess I see people do this and they bring their own food. 
and you go out for the first time and you have like five bad experiences on public land, like that person's not having a memorable time that they're going to stay yeah. with it. Like that's where I think we just need to really think out like how do we recruit so we can retain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that that is a big part of it. And I think, you know, it comes down to access and positive experiences in the field. And um, whether it's more public land or a lot of these programs like PATH just started in South Dakota. Onyx actually was a big part of this, along with Pheasants Forever. And they're opening up um, 10,000 acres, I think. Oh, they, wow. they started with, I think they're, they're, I think they're going to try to do 10,000 acres every year for 10 years. If I remember the numbers correctly, there was $250,000 that Onyx and Pheasants Forever, I think they came up with that money themselves, or maybe there was a, some grant money in there too, but to, to kick off this program and programs like that or plots or, um, you know, the walk-in access, Minnesota's walk-in access is growing. Mm-hmm. Those I think are going to be really key in this yeah. uh, fight for more hunting access. It doesn't have to be public land, but if we can find ways to get more private landowners to make a little bit of money to allow hunters on some private land, uh, I, I think you'll create more and more positive experiences without, ha- you know, some people have a negative connotation with, with public land in certain situations. So I think if you can open up some more private land, yes. you know, that's going to create more opportunities for people. One thought that I've had for a long time is, is like, it feels like we're at the point where we need to like revisit Pittman Robertson and say like, it's not enough anymore. We need to do it. We need to do another thing that we're asking for to just increase the longevity of this, whether that's like, Hey, like let's figure out a way where like landowners can get rewarded positively for opening up their access in like new ways that are more encouraging, more powerful. Like maybe that's like land tax, real estate tax credits or, you know, opportunities, or maybe it's like North Dakota plots where we'll pay you per acre. But we're saying like, it's almost like we need more. Like what we have is amazing and it's really a great thing that the people 80 years ago thought of the fact that we need the Pittman Robertson act to help preserve conservation. But it's like, maybe we're at the point where it's like, we need to do the next level up, like somehow, some way, like I never think about it when I buy a shotgun that 11% of this is going towards conservation. I'm still going to buy a shotgun. Like it, you know, maybe there's just new things we need to think of, of how can we really add the next step of longevity to, to this tradition? Like you said, so it can last forever. It's a really well-named I, channel he came up with. <laughs> Again, it gives you a blanket to talk about anything you want. Hunting, fishing, conservation, recruitment, retainment, all these things kind of cover that umbrella. And honestly, that that part, the conservation, the the tradition, the retainment, recruitment, that to me is, is as important as the hunting and fishing stories that we tell. We tried to have a conversation, a conservation element to every every story we tell. Uh, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we're just out there catching a bunch of fish and making a cool video, but we try to have something that can maybe spark an idea with somebody or give them the realization like, Oh, that's why we're able to do that. You know, with Prairie sportsmen, the conservation is a big part of honestly, the big part of the success of our show is I, I describe that as the outdoor opportunities in Minnesota and the science and management behind those opportunities. Like the reasons we have the opportunity to go pheasant hunt here or go catch walleyes here. It's the stocking efforts or it's the, the, the CRP program or the walk-in. And honestly, that path program, what that does is it's not just buying land and making it open. It's tacking money onto their walk-in 
access program, I believe is what it is. So, so when, when South Dakota landowners enroll in this program, they get X amount of dollars per acre. I should, I should be looking this up to get exact numbers, but this path program will tack on some money. Um, so I, I think they, I think it's a 10, like they get a 10 year program and they get paid a couple bucks per acre for the 10 years. So say somebody has yeah. what, 320 acres, they get $3,200 for 10 years. Like here's a check for 3,200 bucks to make your, your land walk in for the next 10 years. Well, this path program will give them an extra four grand. So they'll more than double their money to incentivize them right. to open up their land to, to more hunters. So yeah. I, I, the Pittman Robertson deal is, was one of the greatest things to happen. Um, we have to be a little careful. I think about taxing people more. Right. And then we also have to be careful because a lot of that Pittman Robertson money comes from like target shooters and competitive shooters and hunters see a lot of the benefits. So there are some people that are like, well, wait a minute. Why, you know, yeah. more money should go to shooting ranges, which shooting ranges do get some money out of this. So, um, we benefit quite a bit from that. So I, I, I know what you're saying and I, and it is, we do need to find ways to continue to fund the outdoors for the future and find ways to do that where it's, it's hard to mandate somebody pay for something. So it's, it, it, I'm always looking for ways to get people to volunteer and show them the positive benefits so that they, so that they are willing to donate or fundraise or whatever right. the case may be, or get the state to realize that, you know, like the like LCCMR is awesome for Minnesota. And, you know, I've got my issues with how Minnesota politics are run in right. a lot of ways. But when they came up with LCCMR and even uh, Outdoor Heritage, but when they decided to do lottery, the lottery in Minnesota, and they dedicated, constitutionally dedicated funds to the environment in Minnesota was brilliant. Right. And, you know, every year it's, you know, 60, 80, 70 million dollars a year going back in the environment from lottery ticket sales. And that's a brilliant way of raising money for the outdoors. So if you can find ways to do it where you're not taxing us because Minnesota's the taxes are plenty high in Minnesota already. Right. So finding ways not to force people. Yeah. It's by not, taking their money. Yeah. You don't want to do that. You don't want to. Yeah. I, I more so meant in spirit of Pittman Robertson where us as sportsmen said, we need, we're agreeing to do something more above and beyond effort so that this stays here. And that's what Pittman Robertson was. And they decided at at the time of a sporting goods tax is the way to go. I think there's a lot of new ways to do it. Now I look at things like what Utah does and I think it would be perfect for North Dakota. I tried to bend the ear of some North Dakota, big game biologists on, Hey, Utah's selling these auction takes. And they raise an incredible amount of money. I think one year I saw that a mule deer tag went for like high six figures, like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a mule deer tag. I think it was like seven hundred and fifty grand someone paid for the wow. governor's tag and on a mule. And it's usually because there's a giant mule deer known in the unit, and so someone's like, "I'm going to shoot that mule deer, so I'm going to buy this tag. I can use any legal weapon during any legal season. So if it's bow season, I can use my rifle, whatever." And um. I, I've where I kind of diverge is like I don't think all of that money always ends up to a great cause. So you'd really have to to structure it well in the in the legislation. But if North Dakota did that with like their like we auction off one elk tag per unit, one moose tag per unit, and one sheep tag, and all of this money is going towards maybe public land access, public access, 
um, you know, access, improvement, whatever. You know, I think there's another, like, conservation thing that's kind of like our three. It's like these three things. We get new access, we improve existing access, and we improve habitat or whatever. And you did that with North Dakota. I think it would be a shining model of how well it can work just due to the nature of North Dakota's quality of game and the size of the state and the population is pretty low comparatively. I think it would be really remarkable, but you just got to make sure that money goes in the right spot. Yeah. It's all, it all comes back to money. It does. (laughs) It's, it's the Richmond North of Richmond. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. It'd be like the Richmond North of, uh, uh, I don't know any towns. For that, it'd be like the Richmond West of Fargo for that. Richland, purpose. Richmond, north of Richland County. Yeah, true. Yeah, that, that's what it would be. There you go. But, but awesome, Brett. Just like that, I'm looking down now, and it's we we rattled off over an hour's worth of stories and content just like that. I seem like the time flies talking mm-hmm. to someone as passionate about the outdoors and the industry as you are. But I do want to give you the opportunity before we wrap up to share with people your channels, where they can find you, where they can find the new stuff, especially with the fish hunt forever and your new kind of direction. You're taking all your things and, and all of the stuff. We'll give them the whole rundown. You bet. So the easiest is to go to Brett and that's with one T. So B R E T A M U N D S O N.com. And that's got links to everything. And uh, usually on the homepage, I put our latest videos, whatever we've been working on. I usually try to update that so people can get the latest YouTube shows right there on one page. But we have four YouTube channels that I direct people to. It's Sporting Journal Radio for the podcast. Fish Hunt Forever for our vlog stuff. We just put out a brand new live scope walleye video out there. And then by the time this airs, our Kodiak film for our Kodiak waterfowl hunt will be on there. Mm-hmm. I got a Saskatchewan waterfowl hunt from last year. It was kind of cool. So I, my, my grandpa was born in Saskatchewan. And the family farm that he was living on, we didn't know where it was. We knew the general area, but we didn't, we'd never seen the farm. So last year I brought my 82 year old dad and my brother and my nephew. And then uh, my nephew's soon to be brother-in-law. Well, now he's his brother-in-law brought them all up there. A couple of them had never been up there before. And we shot a bunch of geese. And then we went in search of the old family farm and I'm making a film out of it. And that'll be on the fish hunt forever youtube channel oh wow and then we got prairie sportsman all the prairie sportsman episodes you can watch those on pbs or you can watch them on the prairie sportsman youtube channel and then taz and lake lodge the taz and tv stuff is on the taz and lake lodge youtube channel so we got websites and social media for all for all these things as well too um but you can get links to them all on my website awesome I- you have a lot of irons in the fire. It's a you got a lot of things going on. I've, I feel like your brain is just a matrix of dates and timelines, and we're posting this, we're posting that, we're doing this. You see smoke come out of my ears occasionally. And there's a reason I'm I'm not married and I don't have any kids. Well, we'll <laughs> make this a little bit easier. We'll make it easy for the listeners. We'll put the links to the 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 Brett Amundsen website and they can find everything from that landing page i i was looking at it earlier today and it's pretty it's pretty easy to navigate if you can find the link in the show description you're halfway home i appreciate that yeah well thanks for being here brett and thank you for listening folks 